Well, we could just go home. <laughs> but it'd be the waste of an average message, so. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say it's good. That seems a little pretentious. So, uh, gear grind here. 1,500 years ago, in the little town of Ravenna, Italy, the emperor of Rome built a tomb for his sister who had passed away. He did it to show his love and devotion to her and his appreciation for her impact on his life. And if you go to Ravenna, Italy today, that mausoleum, 1,500 years old, is still standing in near flawless condition. The building, as you can see, is designed in the shape of a cross. And the ceilings inside all of that building are vaulted, arced. And on each one of those vaulted ceilings is a different mosaic. Thousands and thousands of tiles, half-inch square tiles, cemented to make this beautiful picture in each room in the mausoleum. Visitors are often disappointed, though, when they go into the mausoleum. Because what they see when they go in rarely matches the pictures they've seen on postcards or searched out on the web. Because, as you look at the building, you notice there's only a few tiny windows, and they don't let in much of the natural light. And so as you stand there in this gorgeous building, nearly all the mosaics are hidden behind a veil of darkness. Until, until some curious person finds this small metal box attached to the wall. No description, no instructions. Searching out the box finds that there's a slot for coins, and he drops a coin in. You can hear it as you're standing there in the silence as the coin clanks to the bottom of the box. And then, immediately and without warning, spotlights on the ceiling come on. And you begin to see things like this, this beautiful dark blue sky with stars all around it. And then, just as quickly, the light goes off. And somehow in that moment, the darkness that you're in seems even darker than what was there before. But with the mystery solved, the darkness doesn't stay very long because people find the box and they repeat this over and over again, dropping coins into this box. And every time the lights come on, you're given a different view of a different space in this building, a glimpse of the world behind the shadows. And you capture elements you hadn't previously seen. You see the beautiful detail in the garlands and the flowers and the fruit leaves that are over every arch in the mausoleum. You see deer drinking from calm streams of water. And eventually your eyes are drawn to the focal point of the entire mausoleum, which is this image of Jesus as our good shepherd. You know, I, I think our faith journey for many of us is a lot like a trip to this mausoleum. We begin our relationship with God with a desire to know Him, with a hunger to experience His presence in our life. We have hope because we know friends and family members whose lives have been changed by a relationship with God. We come into this relationship longing for God's grace, longing for His forgiveness. We're choosing a new direction often because the path we've been on hasn't worked out so well. We come looking for what we've been told God will provide. For some who enter this Christian journey, the lights never get turned on. 
They jump into a community or a church or relationships where they're offered a substitute form of Christianity, one that can't break through the shadows in their life, one that never really satisfies the deepest longings of their soul. What they and we, when we find ourselves in that place, hunger for most is those moments. Moments in our life that are unexpected and undeserved. Moments when a coin is dropped and our vision is transformed by a bright burst of light. And though it may only be a brief moment, we capture an image, a glimpse of an entirely different way of relating to God. And in those moments, our hearts hunger for more. So as Danielle said, we're launching a new series today that I hope, that I pray, is going to challenge each one of us to take an honest look at our relationship with God. What is it that we expect of God? What's our motivation for following Jesus? And to do this, we're going to look at five different prepositions, each one of which I think defines a common pattern that we would fall into as we relate to God. So let me just give you a preview. When we talk about a life from God, a life from God, that describes people who want God's blessings in their life, but they're not particularly concerned about God himself. A life for God describes people who believe that the most significant life we could ever live is one that is expended in accomplishing great things in God's service. A life over God That just loses all the mystery and wonder in this world as God is abandoned in favor of proven formulas and controllable outcomes. A life under God? Well, in that one, our primary role is to determine what God approves of and what he disapproves and try to keep our lives between those guardrails. We're going to look closely at each of these four most common postures that we choose and why they're so appealing to us. Because each one of them has a grain of truth in it, but it ultimately misses what God desires in a relationship with us. Every posture fails to deliver us from our fears, and at worst it risks inoculating us against a true relationship with God. Along the way, I hope that In your world, some coins get dropped in the box to illuminate an alternative vision for what your relationship with God could be like, one that helps you imagine or reimagine your relationship with God, whether you've just been on this journey for a year or for decades. So let's dig in. I think there are a lot of us in our lives who, willingly or not, have reduced our relationship with God to a place where we feel like His love is conditional. How God feels about me at any given moment is determined by my behavior. It's like God sitting in this giant swivel chair in heaven. And as long as I obey his word, as long as I stay pure, he faces me and he smiles on me. But one step outside the boundaries, one rule broken, one sin, and that chair pivots and God looks away from me as if he's angry or ashamed of me. And the only way to get God to turn back towards me is to get God, is to do something about our bad behavior to become good again that's a really good picture of what it means to try to live a life under god it reduces our relationship with god to simple cause and effect terms we have to work hard to obey god and if we do 
then he'll bless our lives. He'll bless our families. He'll bless our country. And when calamity comes, well, most likely, it's because I've done something in my life to tick God off. I deserve the bad things that have come in my life. It's, it's a really easy way to relate to God, and it's easy to fall in this groove where we think that way. The world we live in reinforces this idea with its performance-based acceptance. Think about it. If we do well in life, doesn't matter what the venture is, athletics or business, if we do well, we win awards, we win acclaim. If we hit the game-winning home run, we're cheered and admired. If we don't perform in any arena, what happens to us? We get fired. We get cut. We get removed. We get demoted. And if we're not careful in all of this, as adults, as parents, as teachers, as leaders, we can communicate the wrong message to people. We can communicate to them that your value and your worth are completely based on your abilities and your performance. We've grown so used to this that it's natural for us to project this onto our relationship with God. And once you recognize this perspective, you'll start to hear it everywhere. It it just jumps out at you. It slips into our conversation easily. I mean, I think back to some of the natural disasters we've had in America over the last couple of decades. You think back to 9-11, to Hurricane Katrina, and it was like instantly there were uh, religious leaders speaking out in all forms of media and basically saying, These disasters have only come to America because we've turned our back on God. Cause and effect relationship. They went on to name the specific sins that they felt were responsible for those disasters. Oddly enough, they didn't name any of their own sins they were struggling with, right? It's just the ones you and I have done. We're the cause of all this bad stuff. And it's just a horrible theology of a relationship with God. If we follow it, it leads us right into a fear-based, performance-based relationship with God, life under God. And our culture isn't the first to wrestle with. It's been around for millennia. In Jesus' day, when he walked the earth, he encountered it. And I think what made his teaching so shocking to so many people was he just blew this theology out of the water. In Luke 18, for example, Jesus is having this conversation with a very wealthy man. And eventually, this man refuses Jesus' invitation to give up everything he owns and come follow him. This man says, I just can't do that, and walks away. When that happens, Jesus turns to his disciples, who've witnessed this whole interaction, and says, look, do you have any idea how difficult it is for people who have it all to enter God's kingdom? I'd say it's easier, Jesus said, to thread a camel through the needle's eye than it is to get a rich person into God's kingdom. (laughs) The statement shocked everybody. The whole culture had bought into the popular belief that people who were healthy and wealthy and comfortable got that place, got to that place, because they had somehow figured out this God thing and were doing it better than everybody else. Their being rich was a tangible sign of God's approval on their life. Jesus spun their heads around and said, no, it's actually almost the opposite. Wealth 
isn't necessarily a sign of God's approval. In fact, Jesus said, for a lot of people, wealth proves to be a barrier to a healthy relationship with God. It seems like this this idea was popping up with Jesus' disciples on a regular basis. In John 9, uh, Jesus has this interaction with a blind man. And as soon as the disciples see this blind man, they turn to Jesus and go, so here's a question. Why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? I mean, in their view, blindness was a curse from God that was handed down as a judgment in response to somebody's disobedience. It wasn't a question of if somebody sinned. It's just whose sin caused this man to be born blind. Jesus quickly corrects that assumption as he restores the man's sight and says, look, it wasn't because of his sins. It wasn't because of his parents' sins that he was born blind. This happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. At every opportunity, Jesus dismantled this life-under-God posture in his culture. And he repeatedly taught to anyone who would listen that disobedience does not mean that a calamity is going to befall you. If it comes, it's probably not closely connected to disobedience. And obeying the rules doesn't guarantee you that you're going to accumulate wealth, that you're never going to be sick that you're going to find favor with God. So why do we fall in this groove? What is it that takes us there? And it's so common. It's ironic this week as I was studying for this talk uh, that a Facebook message popped up from a friend of mine. He's in another state looking for a job, and it's been a real struggle to try to find a job. By his own admission, he was getting discouraged. And he said, here, everything was going wrong. But, he says, this is a phrase that caught me, I just kept doing the right things, and the guy upstairs put some wind in my sails. I'm assuming he wasn't talking about the guy that lived in the condo above him. You see that in there? It's subtle. And, And he probably didn't mean anything by it, but it just creeps into our language. It makes it sound like the only reason God helped him was because he was doing the right things. And if he stopped doing the right things, God would stop helping him. That's life under God. And it's easy to understand. There's a lot of stuff in our life that we struggle with. I know I do. Stuff that's beyond my control. There's chaos in our lives, and that chaos often leads us to fear. We wonder, is my business going to make it to the end of the year? Am I still going to have a job at the end of the year? How will I support my family? Will my kids stay healthy? My grandkids stay healthy? Will my investments be enough for me in retirement? I think the biggest fear we all have is, will the Cubs make it to the postseason? And we know the Sox won't. But seriously, if the Cubs, if the, I mean, they got to pull it together. See, we desperately want to believe whatever it is that we're facing in our life that's causing this chaos, we want to believe that if we can crack the code, if we can find the prescription, we can figure out how to control the chaos and fear in our life, or at least minimize the damage. Ultimately, that leads us to a place that sounds so wrong to just say, but we go there. When we live out this life under God thing, when we choose a performance-based relationship with God, what we're ultimately trying to do is to control God through our behavior. 
You see that? We want to do good things so that it puts God in our debt and he is obligated to help us. It just sounds wrong, but we do it. So let's play that out. Let's see, if that system would work, you got chaos in your life and so do I. you got things you can't understand or control, so do I. What would we have to do to put God in our debt? So that he'll fix what's broken. So if I make my list, it's going to start because of my childhood and what my parents drilled into me. It's going to start with, I have to read my Bible and pray every single day. I have to go to church every Sunday. So I mean, by looking at the numbers in the room today, there are a lot of people that have already fallen off the rails on that one. So I have to serve. I need to serve at my church and contribute to the work that's going on there. I need to serve the poor and the needy in the community. Is that enough? Is that enough good in my life to force God to fix what's wrong in my life? Well, there is that other thing that I haven't mentioned yet. I have to try really hard not to sin because God said I shouldn't sin. Or at least I should, you know, keep it to a minimum. I can't lose my temper. I gotta watch my language. And there's some shows that I'm following on Netflix and Hulu I probably ought to delete and block. Just saying. Is that good enough? Will God swing things in my favor if I do all of that? What's hard about that thinking is we hear it and we go, well, there's a grain of truth in that, isn't there? God has given us commands, He wants us to follow, He has given rules to guide our life. But what life under God misses is the motivation for following God's leading. We don't obey God in an attempt to curry favor, to get his blessing. We don't do it so that he'll swivel that chair around and face us again and smile. We don't get to make deals with God in order to earn his love and his grace. If we try then what we end up doing is creating a legalistic, fundamental religion, not a relationship with God. It's so easy to choose this path when our life is in chaos. I mean, all week long I've been thinking about a friend of mine, Tony, that I was in a community group with years ago. Tony was not a believer for the longest time, so as a community group we prayed for him. We prayed for his wife Libby, who was a part of the group. And we prayed for their son, Mark, who was eight years old and had a brain tumor. We celebrated as a group when Mark's cancer went into remission. We celebrated as a group when Tony took a risk and came to the community group. Huge step for him. Our celebration crescendoed when, a few months later, Tony decided to accept Jesus and be baptized. Those are great days in a community group. A couple years later, we were sitting in the group. We were doing the normal thing a lot of groups do. We were doing high-low, which is not like small group gambling. It's um, You just literally go around the group and share what's the highest high or the lowest low that's happened in your life since we last met. And as soon as the question came out, Tony just put his head in his hands and stared at the floor. We worked our way around the group. We got to Tony and said, Tony, what's up? By then, he was just crying and told us 
Mark's cancer is back. Went on to describe to us the surgeries and the treatments and the pain that was going to be in their life. And he said, you know, I just don't understand. I gave my life to Jesus. I've been going to church and coming to this group. I've been reading the Bible. How could God do this to us? And as he sat there, he never looked up. He just kept talking and his tears drenched the carpet between his feet. And the last thing he said, I'll never forget this, was, if this is how God treats his friends, and his voice trailed off. It is critically important that we understand the downfall of a life under God. It has such a profound impact on our relationship with him. If we choose to try to structure our relationship with God in this way, what's going to happen? When we do our best for God and our business still goes bankrupt, we lose our job, our kids, or we get sick, or as in Tony's case, the cancer comes back. If we're trying to live a life where we work out this bargain with God and He doesn't come through, all of a sudden this whole Christianity thing starts to feel like a scam. We've lost sight of the truth that a relationship with Christ, being a Christian, cannot be reduced to some simplistic equation or bargain with God. It is much more beautiful. It is much more complex than that. Following Jesus isn't about gaining control over our life. It isn't about gaining control of the chaos. It isn't even about gaining control of the fears. Far from control, a life with God is about surrender. It's about letting go. It's about knowing that there is nothing, nothing that's going to happen in our life, nothing on heaven, nothing on earth, that's able to separate us from God's love, from His grace, from His goodness. That's the best deal ever. Because when we discover that, we realize that it's not in our strength, but in our weakness that Jesus comes to us. He comes to us after our biggest mistake. Rather than running away, he runs towards us. When we feel like an outsider, when we feel like we failed as a friend, as a spouse, as a follower of Jesus, as a human being. And in those moments of our deepest pain, Jesus comes towards us. Because God looks for people who are broken. God looks for those who, don't, who know that they are not good enough. He comes for those who are tired of pretending they've got it all figured out. If I know one thing to be true, the longer I live, I know this. The only thing that I've figured out is my desperate need for Jesus.